Welcome to Just to Know You, the podcast that interviews regular people at SAES and finds out they are far from regular. That's right. I'm your host, Darian Batten. And I'm Angela Kerskadden. Let's get started. Today, I, I invited you for kind of a couple of reasons. Um, number one, I've just always enjoyed chatting with you. When we used to work together in Abcake, I couldn't wait to kind of hear some, some stories. So um, let's kind of like take it back for the listeners that don't know Joanna Yates. Um, why don't we start with um, where you grew up? Okay. Well, I was born in Hong Kong and I lived there for about 10 years and then moved to the U.S., and lived in Colorado for four or five years, lived in Maryland for four or five years, and then lived in California for about 10 years or so. And that was kind of my time in the U.S. And why were you hopping around as a, like for four or five years in the different states? My parents decided they want to move to the U.S. They both wanted to get master's degree. And so we were in Colorado living with my grandma. We stayed at my grandma's house and my parents went to school to get their master's. And so she kind of took care of us uh, while my parents were in school. And then after they graduated, they both got jobs. And so my dad got a job in Maryland, and that's how we ended up there. So your parents were born in Hong Kong, but did they speak English? And how did they do with doing a master's in America? My parents actually, they both know English fluently. My mom's actually an American-born Chinese. Okay. Yes. And my dad, uh, he was he grew up in Hong Kong, but in Hong Kong they have all bilingual schools, and so he studied English and you know starting from first grade on to university. And actually, their university in Hong Kong is all the school is all in English. And my dad actually was a medical doctor, so everything was in English. And where did you live in California? Well, I lived in Orange County, which okay. is kind of close to Disneyland. That's where I went to university. And then I got my first job as a teacher there in California. I remember us talking about how you weren't sure if you wanted to be a teacher or a doctor. Yeah, well, I just want to do something with people. I was thinking about something in the medical field. So I, I explored, you know, possibly being a doctor, a nurse. I looked at be, being a physical therapist. And so then I took my anatomy physiology class. And I think that was it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I said, I don't think I can handle a, a body. <laughs> That's a lot of memorizing, too. It's a, it's a big commitment. So why did you ultimately choose education? Either way, I just wanted to work with people. I did not. I knew that I had tried several jobs in the summers. And I have, I've done office jobs. I've done different variety of things. I worked in a museum. I tried a lot of different things. And Nothing suited me. Like, I didn't want to sit behind a desk. Um, and I wanted to have the interaction with people all the time. And and I think um, that that's what drew me to teaching because I wanted to work with people and um, especially with kids. Yeah, for sure. Kids, yeah. So you went to university in California? Yes. yes. Okay. Which university was that? I went to Biola University. Okay. And is that yeah. where you met Phil? Yes. How did you, were you in the same class as him? Um, no, actually we weren't because when I first went to university, I was actually a pre-med major. Okay. And so I did, I met him, but he had the expectations that I was going to be a rich doctor <laughs> and he was going to date this girl that was going to become a doctor <laughs> and that didn't work out for him. <laughs> yeah. Like, sorry. Teacher. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, actually I didn't, um, choose the teaching, um, major until my junior year. 
Okay. So I was actually taking a lot of pre-med classes my freshman and sophomore year. That's a brave to kind of like let go of all of those classes you took and to say like, I'm just going to let that go and start again because I don't imagine a lot of them transferred over to education. Right, right. Yeah. So I actually, I think I took the longer time. It took me five years instead. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. So then how many years did you work in the States before you guys went overseas? Uh, We were in California teaching for seven years. So we were... Yeah, so we were in kind of like a, a low-income area, um, teaching um, underprivileged kids, and and so it was challenging. Um, and so, like now that I think back to it, I can't imagine. You know, like I was teaching third grade, and I had like half of my class they couldn't read at all. Wow. And, um, and now I'm teaching first grade, and all my first graders are reading. Right. And I just see like there's a huge difference, you know, from you know. The Ramco versus the schools that I was teaching at in California. So you were in America for seven years, and then you guys went overseas. Is that right? Yes. yes. Okay. So where did you go to? We wanted to travel, and we found this group that was doing summer English camps. And so um, Phil and I, we decided to join this group, and we went to China to do these uh, English camps. And we did it actually three summers in a row. The headmaster in China really, really liked us. And so he introduced us to the head leader of the county, which is called the magistrate. And he was a former English teacher, which was kind of unusual. And so he could speak fluent English. And so he met us and then he said, I would love for you guys to come and teach in China. And, but this is a very remote area where um, there were, there were no foreigners at all. Phil and I were the first foreigners to be ever invited to live in this area of China. Um, So people had never seen, I mean, I look Chinese, so I kind of blended in. But for Phil, I mean, he has blonde hair and green hazel eyes. So he stood out, you know, right away. And so he was like a famous celebrity. (laughs) Phil must have loved it. Yeah. And then they all thought I was the translator. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's so funny, which you probably were a little bit. I I mean, but you speak Cantonese. Is that correct? Yeah. So I didn't speak speak the local language when I moved there. And so so anyway, we got uh, invited to um, move to China. And I was teaching third grade in California. And when we moved to China... It was a huge jump because suddenly I'm asked to teach high school. Oh, and I've never taught high school before. And so that was a huge jump and a very different. Um, but Chinese students um, uh, are super respectful. And so I, I have a class of 80 students. And, oh, my gosh. And not just one class. I had 22 classes of 80 students each. So do the math there. I had a lot of students. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. That's crazy. Yeah. So I would um, teach one class and then another class would come and another class would come and, and so forth. Okay. So on one hand, you'd prepped once, taught how many times? Well, no, I had different grade levels. Oh, okay. So I had the freshmen and the sophomore and the juniors and the seniors all mixed together. And um, so I would prep one class and maybe I would teach like five or six of those same lessons to five or six classes. And then I had a sophomore class and a junior class and so forth. How would you keep track with like what you like? You're like, did I teach this one to you guys or did I, you'd have to. I had four notebooks. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
each notebook had a different lesson to go with a different grade level and they had a textbook and so I would use their textbook and then and then what I did was I took a lot of our western methodology and I would tie it into what they had inside their textbook and try to incorporate that into a classroom and they had never seen that kind of teaching style before uh, because it, the Chinese schools were so used to just you know the teacher stands up on, at the front and just lecture. I still remember the first time I had them, you know, turn and talk to the neighbor. They all stared at me like, what are you talking about? They were like, what? We can talk in class? <laughs> the students will stand at the door when they would come in if they're late. And, you know, in the U.S. or here even in Aramco, when the students are late, they just walk right into the classroom. But the students would stand right outside the door and they wouldn't come in. And I didn't realize that. So I had students standing at the door for like 10, 15 minutes. I'm like, why don't they come inside the classroom? And then finally, one of my students sitting in the front, they, they said, uh, Miss Lin, that's what they called me in China. They're like, Miss Lin, call them to come inside. I said, oh. Oh, wow. I had to learn a lot of the cultural differences as well of um, schools in China versus uh, schools in the U.S. What year was this that we, what time? 17 years ago now. 17 years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I've been here at Aramco for 10, and that was seven seven or eight years in China. Okay. So I can't remember now. Maybe so like 2004. Or, something like that, yeah. yeah. So what city, province, or like kind of geographically, where were you located yeah. in China? So if you, if you can imagine the map of China, so it's kind of in the middle, southern part. And so it's um, kind of like a wet area, very rainy and... And everything there is spicy. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So if you ever heard of like Hunan food or Sichuan food, uh, we're, the province right next to us are Hunan and Sichuan. So er, the, there's like four provinces. They're called like the hot pot spicy area. And so um, that's we were in that province. Oh, interesting. So when you think back on your time, like in China, what stories do you say like, explain the differences of like, I can't imagine, I imagine it's quite different if they've never had a foreigner there before. So it must've been very traditionally Chinese. So what are some of the like memories you have of how different it was and just kind of how you guys adapted to the life there? Well, I'll tell you a story. Yeah. Um, so we had Chinese New Year and uh, the students uh, invited us to go spend Chinese New Year with them at their homes. And so I said, okay, sure, we'll come and visit your home. Uh, what I didn't realize was that this was the rainy time and the buses were going to get stuck in the mud. <laughs> oh, and so no. we took the bus out to the villages, and that's where most of our students were. It was a boarding school. So we had 3,000 students at this school, and 90% of the students were boarders. We decided to visit like a series of students. So we made this plan that we're going to stay at one village, be there for a few days, and then move to another village, be there for a few days, and just keep on visiting students. That was our plan. But you'll hear the story. <laughs> <laughs> we went to the first uh, student's uh, house. His name was Justin. And the bus got stuck in the mud halfway through the on the trip. And so he said, okay, we're going to walk. I said, Okay. He said, I said, well, how far is the walk? He said, oh, not far. But little did I know that countryside boys can walk for miles and miles and miles and they never get tired. <laughs> right. Okay. And so we walked and walked and walked. We walked a whole day. Oh, my gosh. Day. 
You walked the yes. whole day to get to his I think house? we walked like eight hours <laughs> <laughs> to get to this village in the middle of the mountain, in the middle of nowhere. And um, so I said, once I got there, I, I told Phil, I said, okay, that's it. We're not leaving. <laughs> we are not leaving. <laughs> so uh, we, we arrived at Justin's home and it was like a little wooden house. And um, his parents had never had guests or foreigners in their house. And they had heard that foreigners like to have um, Western toilets. And they didn't have any um, toilets. They didn't even have a toilet in their house. They just had like a wooden outhouse. And so when we got there, we I had found out that the dad had built a toilet just for me. Oh. Just for me, for me to stay there for a few days. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, and they built a bed for me. They bought all new um, bedding for the bed. They bought new towels. I mean, they went all out for us to have this, uh, to spend Chinese New Year with us. And they're very, very poor farmers. And it was just so, you know, just touched my heart so much that these poor people that have nothing, they would go, you know, that extra, extra mile to to love on us. By the time we had we had spent, I think, three or four days with them, and, you know, they, they constantly fed us. It was like never a moment that I was hungry. Constantly they were putting food in front of me. And they kept saying, eat more, eat more. And then finally it was time for us to go. And I said, okay, we're going to go. And and we were going to go visit the next student's home. And so what they did is they did not want us to leave. So they kept saying that oh. <laughs> the bus was broken. So oh. you cannot leave because the bus is broken. One day I heard the bus was driving by. I said, Wait, the bus is driving by. I said, "Are you sure it's broken?" <laughs> so little did we know that they had just—they would just wanted us to keep staying there because they didn't want us to leave. That's amazing. And, yeah, and then finally we said, "Okay, I hear the bus. The bus is calling us." We said, "We have to leave because we promised these other students we must go visit them." And so, on the way out, they hand us some gifts. I said, "What?" And I said, "They handed me this rice bag, this big rice bag, and..." It was moving. And I said, what is in this bag? And it was shaking a lot. And I was like, Phil, you take that bag because I don't know what's inside. And um, and it was tied up with a string. And we were getting on the bus. I didn't know what was inside that bus, inside the bag. And then so <laughs> as we were leaving, my student, Justin, whispers in my ear. He's like, it's a chicken. <laughs> and then I find out and the, as, the, as we were leaving, the mom, she said, She's like, you become like a daughter for us. And she said, we only give chickens to uh, guests that become like family for us. And so she said, I want to give you this chicken because now you are our family. And so please, he said, you have to come back. So we, actually, we went back to that village uh, multiple times. And, and this this boy, Justin, actually, he his children are like my godchildren these days. And uh, and that, you know, that, that went, it was my first visit ever. And it just made a lasting impression um, on me. For sure. I mean, that's amazing. I feel like that's why we do this, right? Like people are, we're looking for those amazing experiences. So you definitely, you keep in touch with them still to this day. Yeah. Yeah. We have, um, we have like a social media app called WeChat. And so I actually still keep in touch with all my students in China and um, they send me messages. They send me pictures. Now they're all grown up and, they're married and have kids, and um, so I've been invited to the weddings, um, and I've gone back to visit only twice since we've been in Aramco, but during those two times, um, 
yeah, I've gotten to meet their little ones, their kids, and, and their husbands, their wives, and so on, which is kind of cool. Oh, it's amazing. I get it now because I remember when I was working with you, I remember you guys going to China for one of your holidays, and I thought, didn't you live there already? And kind of, I, I thought, well, okay, well, you know, and I kind of, I remember pausing and being like, I lived in China. I don't, and I kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to go back again, but it sounds like. I understand now. Like you have so many connections there. Yeah, yeah. Those relationships were really deep. I mean, I didn't realize that I can have like these kind of deep relationships with students because I used to teach third grade, and you know, it's different with third graders versus high schoolers. And um, so, yeah, it was really different because um, our house in China became like like the local hangout. <laughs> oh, cool. And so all the students will just come hang out at our house because they all wanted to practice English. And so we basically opened our doors, and kids would come over whenever they wanted, when they had a free chance, and they would come and practice English with us. Sometimes they would play video games with Phil. We had many nights where they were just playing like NBA basketball or uh, FIFA soccer or something like that on the on the PlayStation, and we introduced them to Western food. We introduced them to spaghetti and uh -huh. pizza, and uh, we even roasted a turkey and invited a lot of students over. How did you get a turkey? Um, we actually traveled uh, 16 hours to the capital city on a bus and brought a turkey back, <laughs> and then Phil put it on the top of the of the bus rack, and we didn't realize it was melting on the 16 hour um, bus ride. <laughs> when we looked afterwards. There was like a whole pool of blood on the shelf. Oh my gosh. And we were so embarrassed. We're like, oh my gosh, there's blood all over the, the, the bus shelf. <laughs> so you went to where? What city? Which capital? Um, the capital city is called Guiyang. And they um and we, we had some expat friends that lived there. And so they introduced us to this hotel um like restaurant place that they sold Western products, and that's where we bought things like butter, because we can't buy butter where we lived. And so we would travel 16 hours just to buy Western products. That's amazing. So I lived in China for four years, but I remember the little village that we lived outside of. Um, we never had real milk. You know, milk was always the box milk on the shelf. And I can remember somebody sent a text saying there is fresh milk in town. And we were so excited. There was about 10 of us that were after school racing to the taxis to go get milk on a Friday night. We were like, getting milk was really exciting. <laughs> um, no, I think I think there's something to be said with sometimes for when things are hard they they stick in your heart more. It's the times in our life where you like, you kind of walk for eight hours to get to, to somebody's home that those are the memories that get made. Okay, so you guys lived in China. What made you decide to leave after, you're there seven years? Yeah, we were seven or eight years, something like that. Um, well, we didn't actually want to leave. Um, but what happened that was that the central government of China decided to do, once in a while, they would do a, they call it a cleansing. And they decided that, that us expat teachers were putting too many Western ideas into the students. Oh, wow. And they were worried because um, they felt that um, we were teaching the, too many ideas that were against the government. They decided, you know what, we're not going to renew the visa for you guys. And we just had to leave, um, unfortunately. 
That really, um, it surprises me that they were honest because I find that kind of from what I've observed is that they usually make up, that's the truth, but then they make up some other story. I don't know. What do you think? Well, uh, we were really close with the police bureau, actually. And so, and I had a lot of their children at the high school. They kind of kept a blind eye to what we were doing. And so the police bureau usually kick people out, but they actually liked us and they wanted us to stay. And also the, all the leaders in the county wanted us to stay, but. You had a great seven or eight years in China. And then where did you have your boys? Well, we were living in China, but we, every time I gave birth, I would come back to California because the hospitals where we were, um, were really awful. <laughs> um, I didn't really trust the system there in in that little countryside village hospital. Uh, I still remember going to the hospital and my doctor was um, wearing flip-flops and shorts and he had a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. And I said, yeah, I don't think he's going to be my doctor. (laughs) Yeah, and then I remember um, I had to draw blood out. and, um, And after they took my blood out, they had this little machine and they put the needle into this little machine and it went and then there's smoke coming out of it and i said well are you reusing that needle i was shocked i'm like oh my gosh did i just get a needle put into me that someone else had used so i'm like oh no no um this is not okay but here's the difference because i look chinese they reused the needle for me but when phil came in he he got a brand new package they opened the package a brand new package of needle just for him. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. But when they spoke to you, do you have an accent? In my... In Mandarin, do you... Because you speak oh, Cantonese. Yeah, yes, I have a... Um, so my Chinese is not very good because obviously I went to the States when I was little. Yeah. And so once I moved to Colorado, I didn't speak Chinese anymore. Right. So um, I had to learn Mandarin Chinese when I was... I actually studied it uh, for two years at the university. Oh, good for you. Yeah. And so, but still it wasn't fluent and it was just, you know, conversational, um, simple phrases I can say. Yeah. And so when I went there, every time I tried to speak Chinese, they always asked me, are you Korean? (laughs) Because my Chinese was so bad. They always assumed that I was Korean. They never thought I was, you know, American Chinese. I learned something new when I was there because I always considered myself to be Chinese. Um, but when I went to China, all my students and everyone told me, they're like, you're not Chinese. I said, what? How am I not Chinese? And they said, oh, you're American. And they're like, we're Chinese, but you're American. And uh, I said, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I said, because in the U.S., we have the term like American Chinese. And so they just didn't get that idea. No, that's interesting because there's just, a, yeah, you need to be born and raised there only, Right. So it, it was interesting. So my girls were born in China. And when we went back to Canada, I don't know if I would say 100%, but almost 100% of people would say, so do they have a dual citizenship? It's, it was like the second question right after. And I was like, no, in China, you like they wouldn't allow our children to be both Chinese. And you have to, you have to make a claim. You have to make a, what are you going to mean? You have to stick with that. So... Moving on. So then you moved to Abcake. 
Yes, yes. And you've been there for... Yeah, so we went to a job fair in Bangkok, and that's how we heard about the Aramco schools. And actually, I wasn't really looking to move to the Middle East, uh, because after losing that visa to stay there, we kind of wanted to just to stay um, somewhere in Asia. So we were thinking, you know, maybe Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, those countries. What really attracted me to Aramco was when we talked with, um, was it John Kerry and, right, John and Tracy Kerry. So we met them in Bangkok. And um, when they were talking with us, they said, well, one thing that we really value here at Aramco is that we love to our teachers to go home at four o'clock. And we want you guys to be with your families. And, and when they talked to us, the whole thing was all about family. Like, we've got, like, soccer games. We've got... Uh, horseback riding for them to join. We've got swimming pools. We've got this for your kids. And um, it was really attractive. Whereas uh, when we interviewed with the school in Hong Kong, um, the, the principal told us, well, you're going to need to get a nanny because most of our teachers usually work until pretty late at night. And so you'll be expected to lay, stay late at night. And uh, our school doesn't have any grass it doesn't really have, it's just like right in the city. In the, I was just thinking like a concrete jungle. And so that didn't seem attractive to me to be living right in the middle of a city. And um, so I'm like, you know what? Maybe we'll give this a chance. And I said, we'll try it for like a year and see how it goes and see if we like it. And here we are. We are been here for 10 years. <laughs> Holy cow. That went by fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I can't believe my... You know, we've got two kids, um, you know, they started in pre-K-4 in first grade, and now I've got a son in boarding school, and I've got one as an eighth grader on their way out, and it'll be it's strange. It is strange. I totally agree. We have a similar story. Our boys are the same age, so. Yes, yes. We have the same age gap between our, our two kids. When you think back on your kind of like your life experiences, how do you feel like those experiences have helped you grow into the person you are today? I think um, the main thing I learned is just that um, about relationships and that people are people wherever they are. And mm -hmm. so whether I'm here in China or whether I'm here in Saudi Arabia, people are actually so gracious everywhere we go. And so Phil and I actually really love to travel all over Saudi Arabia and we've done road trips um, literally everywhere on in this country. And uh, we've been amazed by how gracious the Saudis are and how they open up their um, their homes or welcome us to have tea. I mean, like, we were out hiking at this little uh, wadi one time, and this guy just, he was like, come, come, come have tea, you know? <laughs> I was like, sit, <laughs> sit. <laughs> and so we just sat down and had tea with us, with him, and next thing he was like, I'm going to call my uncle. Okay. So his uncle showed up and he's like, I'm going to call my brother. And next thing his brother showed up and pretty soon there was like a huge crowd and we're all having tea and dates and, and enjoying. And, and it's just kind of, it reminded of my time in, in China because um, they were so welcoming, so kind and so giving and they didn't want us to leave. Cause we tried, <laughs> to, leave, we tried to leave several times and they're like, no, 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 you cannot leave. And uh, they would try to pull us back down, you know. And so I think we were meeting just to, like, sit there for maybe 15 minutes, and it ended up being several hours. 
And next thing we know, like they exchanged phone numbers and he was like, please call us. Like when you come to the, this town next time, we will host you. You can stay at our home and um, just so welcome. I mean, so one thing I've learned that, you know, no matter where you go, um, people, I think, are the same. You know, uh, that's what I've discovered, you know, the, from like a Chinese culture that is super different from from the, the Saudi culture. I realized that actually everyone's the same. That's amazing. And I, I, I love that you have learned this and experienced it. But I think it's because you put yourself out there, you know, like you, you guys went to the middle of China, you got we went for a road trip around Saudi, you're not going to have these experiences when if we just kind of live in our compound walls, right? A lot of it's kind of getting out and being willing to be, you know, be up for an adventure. Yeah. And the thing is that I, one thing I have to say, I have to admire my husband is that um, even though in China he was very limited in language, he was always able to make people laugh. <laughs> and, and I think um, that was the one thing I think, no matter what culture you are, if you can make people laugh, they will relax and enjoy the time with you. And even though like all these Saudis we met on the road, they most of them did not speak English. And so, but we would just sit there and they would admire his truck. They always would like to look at his truck because they loved his truck. And they would check out, they would check out all the cool features he put on this truck. And then suddenly like we'll start showing them photos. And then, then they'll just sit there and we'll look at photos on our phones and they'll show us photos on their phones and we'll just drink tea. And, and sometimes it's, there's no words that are really exchanged because they'll speak to us in Arabic and we'll speak to them in English. We don't really know what each other is saying, but somehow there's a conversation going in our own language, which is kind of amazing. And yeah, it's kind of amazing. Did you camp along the way? Yeah, um, both, a mixture of both. Okay. Like sometimes camping, sometimes we get like a little hostel along somewhere. Yeah. We've discovered a lot of fun places in Saudi Arabia. Good for you. Where would you recommend? Well, um, I love Tab Tabuk, okay. which is in the northern part of Saudi Arabia. And um, there's a wadi there called Wadi Disa. And, but you need a four-wheel drive. So um, you can take your regular car up there. But once you get to the valley, um, you'll have probably, if you don't have a four-wheel drive, you're going to have to like hire one of the trucks that are at the entrances and then just take their trucks to go in. But if you have your own four-wheel drive, uh, I definitely recommend um, Wadi Disa, in, which is about two and a half hours away from Tabuk. So um, there's no hotels in Wadi Disa. So what uh, you do is either you stay in Tabuk and get a hotel there and then just do a day trip out to Wadi Disa. Um, or if you're up for camping, you can um, camp out there. But I was warned by the the Saudis out there that there's snakes at, in the in the valley. So we decided we're not going to camp Okay, and then why is this wadi so, like, is it just stunning and quite beautiful? Yeah, it's just gorgeous. I mean, if you Google up the um, images of Wadi Disa, you don't think you're in Saudi Arabia at all. There's this, like, lush green valley with water going through it. And um, these beautiful rocks, um, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you ever heard of Zion National Park in, in USA. Um, that's what it reminds me of, um, or Bryce Canyon. It's just these beautiful kind of reddish rock formations are just gorgeous. Um, so you just kind of drive through this valley. You can stop along the way. We bring a picnic um, and you can climb up to the top of these rocks and look down. 
Um, and once in a while, a camel with a guy will walk by. And oh my gosh, it's, it's like it's a movie. Yeah. And it was so beautiful that we actually went back twice because uh, it's just such a gorgeous, beautiful place. Wow. I would love to go back another time. And how, how long of a drive is it from Abkik? Well, you'd need at least two days to drive okay. here. Yeah. yeah, because you have to stop somewhere halfway. Yeah. And so usually we stop we stop in a town called Bereda, and then and then from Bereda we kept on driving to Tabuk. Um, and then my second place I would love to visit again, so absolutely recommend it. It's called Wadi Lajab, and this is all in the southern part of uh, Saudi Arabia where it snows, and so you would think is it uh, the southern part would be warmer, but actually it's colder. Like we absolutely loved the southern part of, of Saudi Arabia. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of um, Abha, which is a very famous um, city in southern parts. And um, But a little bit south, south of Abha is this wadi. And uh, it's almost near the border of Yemen. Once you go to this valley, um, it's the most amazing experience. So there's this canyon, this high canyon wall, and, um, and you hike through this so basically you get to this hike and you walk through this wadi where um, there's a stream. So you take off your shoes and you walk through and you hike through it barefoot. You have to do it barefoot. And you hike through these walks and you have to climb up rocks and um, it's so much fun. There's like little like mm. like little waterfalls um, combing down the, sounds beautiful. Um, the rocks. It was just gorgeous. And as you're walking, there's like these tiny little fish that um, I don't know what they're called, but they eat the dead skin off your uh-huh. your feet. Yeah. And so if you stand still, they would nibble. They have like these, they just nibble at your skin. And it just feels like little tickles. <laughs> on your feet. And uh, my kids, my kids just, they thought that was the best thing ever to just stand there and have little fish nibbling at their feet. <laughs> um, and then at the end of the hike, you get to the end and there's a big giant rope swing. Oh, that cool. you can swing off from a rock, rock into a, a very deep pool of, uh, of cold water. Oh, it sounds very cool. Yeah, yeah. super so special. Two top places I would say definitely visit if you get a chance because you have to see other places besides um, the sand. <laughs> yeah. Now, part of this Aramco life living has is been a boarding school jump for you guys and. How has that transition gone for your family? And did you ever expect that you would have children in boarding school? Yeah, I didn't think so. I thought maybe they would go to school here. But um, but the Maples actually were the ones that uh, introduced us to this school in Germany. And their daughter really loved it. And so we just went online to look at the school. And we thought, well, maybe we'll consider it. And um, and then Jeremiah kept talking about it, and his all his friends were all going to boarding school. So I think he wanted to go to boarding school as well. Um, so we sent him last year, and I think that was the best decision we made. Uh, he is so happy; he loves it. He has a wonderful dorm, uh, boys that he's friends with, and so yeah, we're very happy. I mean, if he's if he's happy, we're very happy. Always, isn't that the truth? Like you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. Right, right. And we, I took Micah there this October for. We did a parent-teacher conference, and I bought, bought my kid. And so he got to do a, um, he got to sleep in the dorm one night to experience what it felt like. And um, he did a, something called a shadow day, and he got to shadow a student for the whole day. Yeah, he loved it. He absolutely loved it. He was like, can I go now? I said, no. <laughs> I still want to keep you here a little bit longer. 
Yeah. And next year he's in grade nine, so he'll go for a ninth grade. Yes, yes. Yeah. So he's already been accepted and he's itching to go. <laughs> Aw, that's amazing. So it's been a it's been a positive experience. I'm just thinking about if this podcast is ever shared with um, new people coming in, you know, that like you had so many so much great advice for Saudi and places for them to see. And um I think I think people are always a little anxious about the boarding school world and I know it varies with each child and Everybody has different experiences, but it's awesome to hear that it's been so positive for your family. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a cool school, too, to be living yes. in Germany. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, absolutely gorgeous. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. It's pretty amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your interesting stories. You have lived a very cool life. I just, I love the choices that you and Phil have made with how you're choosing to experience the cultures that you're living in. I feel like... It has to have enriched your lives and your heart. And I just admire you guys for that. I think it's such a wonderful path to take in life and not just to choose to pictures and move, but just to kind of pause, stop and and take it all in. I, I love that. I love that this is your stories that you have to share. So I really, really appreciate hearing all of these. They're super. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Just To Know You. We would like to thank our amazing tech man, Mr. Kent Arimura, Sterling McDonald for the podcast music, and the SAES community. See you next time. If you know anyone who you think has a great story to tell, we would love to hear about it. Please send an email to either Angela, Darian, or Kent. 